Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Alzheimer. He is a credit and debt expert, and we're going to talk about all aspects of debt and credit. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, John. Hey, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me. Just give us a little bit of background about you and people who have not heard or seen you before. Yeah, so actually this month is my 31st year in the credit, marks my anniversary for my 31st year in the credit industry. I spent time at Equifax, which is one of the credit bureaus. I spent time at FICO, which is the company that invented the credit scoring system that is ubiquitous in today's financial services market. And for the past 17 years, I've written four books about credit, and I've served as an expert witness in over 600 credit-related lawsuits. Very good. So let's kind of start at a broad level about the state of credit in America today. Fed Reserve has been raising interest rates. They've done it four times. They're probably going to raise it more. Uh, Credit card debt has been rising pretty sharply. Kind of just give us an overall view of where the credit markets stand today for consumers. Well, it's it's a whole lot more expensive to borrow money today than it was two years ago, that's for sure. Um, which is a shame because the interest rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage today is about seven and a quarter-ish percent, which, and that's if you have perfect credit reports and perfect credit scores. Um, you know, seven percent would have been laughable a few years ago. That would have been worse than subprime. So, so money is very expensive today, um, and so if you're if you're in the market for refinancing or buying a home with purchase money, you're I mean, it, you're desperate, right? I mean, you have no cheap alternative other than paying cash. And so you you really must want the house or you really must need to refinance. Uh, you know, consumers' credit scores, which is, this is a little counterintuitive coming out of the back end of a pandemic. Um, consumers' credit scores have stayed relatively stable, if not um, if, if not improved over the last few years. And you can you can thank the CARES Act a little bit for that because it restricted whether or not lenders could report consumers as being delinquent to the credit bureaus under, under certain conditions. But today, as, we, as we're having our conversation, the average FICO credit score uh, is about 716, which historically speaking is, is the highest it's ever been. It doesn't mean that 716 should be your, your end goal for a credit score, but it, it, it does kind of reward the, the American consumer and kind of underscores um, how important they've made credit even during the middle of a pandemic. So the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates in order to slow consumer spending and to stop inflation um, and by raising interest rates. Do you think it's going to work? I, I mean, to the extent that they're, if, if the goal is to stop consumer spending, then it's working. Um, maybe not spending on credit cards because interest is optional on a credit card account. I mean, you can choose to not get into so much debt that you can't pay it in full every month, which if you do, then your interest rate becomes you know, meaningless. Uh, but for things like auto loans where interest is not optional and mortgages where interest is not optional, I don't know. If you, if you mean, do you have any friends in the refinance market? If so, and they're still employed, then that's actually pretty impressive uh, because I can't imagine anybody is refinancing mortgage loans right now because you, no, one, no one refinances to a higher interest rate. That's typically very counterintuitive. So sure, I mean, if, if the goal is to stop people from borrowing money to make large purchases, then that certainly seems to be the case. Um, I, I think at the macro level, that that 
that's great, right? Um, at the micro level, when someone wants to refinance a mortgage or needs to refinance a mortgage because it's 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 a, it's going to adjust, or if they want to buy a new home and they're gamefully employed, uh, and right now you have to really ask yourself the question: Do I want to take the leap right now? And so, at the micro level, at the more local level, you know, these are people who are choosing not to buy homes, which means real estate agents aren't getting paid, closing attorneys aren't getting paid, surveyors aren't getting paid. So it 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 may sound great from the macro level, but at the micro level, it's it's very problematic. It has a multiplier effect. And not only that, but when people buy a home, they buy furniture and carpeting and TVs and all the things that go in it and all that thing, those things don't happen when people buy homes. And the home sales have been down for whatever, eight months in a row or something like that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. Um, you know, eight months in a row and why, you mean, you, you tell me, why would it not continue to go down? I mean, it, again, the money's... The money is so expensive, inventory is going up, prices are coming down, which which sounds great, unless you have to borrow money at seven and a quarter percent to buy something. So, um, you know, a couple of years ago, if I told you you'd pay with FICO seven sixteen above, you'd pay seven and a, seven and a quarter percent for a mortgage loan. You would have thought, a, I was crazy, and b, no one in their right mind would borrow that kind of money to to buy a home. Where today, that's the best deal you can get, unless you just happen to have you know, a, you know, a lender that holds their own portfolio. They're not, you know, they don't back it with Fannie and Freddie money, and they can choose to set interest rates as they may. But, but otherwise, you're you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And right now, the hard place seems to be doing nothing. So, do you think it's going to go higher? I mean, the Fed has raised rates four times. Do you think that they will raise again more times into next year? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not an economist, but if 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 the goal is to stop people from buying homes and buying cars, and to some extent, adjustable rate interest on more, on credit cards is tied to the Fed funds rate, then I mean, I guess why? I mean, what's the difference? What's the difference between seven and a quarter percent and eight percent for a $500,000 mortgage loan? It's not the 75 basis points is the problem. It's the, it's the five and a half points between 2.75 and seven that that's the problem. So, you know, it, raising it incrementally from this point seems to be almost like beating a dead horse. Yeah. Yeah. But it also beyond mortgages, credit card rates have gone up and car loan rates and you know, student loan rates and all the other areas. Uh, it's costing people a lot more than it did uh, before. And I guess their their purpose is to have people spend less. But it seems like it's very difficult. At the same time, you have these inflationary pressures, which means that people are borrowing basic survival. They don't have enough money from their income to pay for food and gas and rent and all the things out there. So, I mean, how is this story going to end? Are we going to, is this going to be a Volcker-like moment where we raise rates dramatically to bring the economy down sharply? I, I kind of think we're headed there, right? I, you know, the good, the good news is, is that everything we just talked about was relative to mortgage loans, which is usually the largest purchase that, that people are going to make is, is their house. Um, Student loans, yes, very expensive. Auto loans, yes, very expensive. However, um, when you're looking at a higher interest rate for a forty or fifty thousand dollar car, it's very different than a higher interest rate on a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar house, right? And and credit card debt, you can, and this is something that, that that people like me and you have been preaching to consumers for a very long time, which is you've got to get yourself into a position financially where the interest rate on your credit card is becomes meaningless because you're paying it in full every single month. So, so 
my credit card companies can raise my interest rates to whatever in the world they want to raise them to. I don't even know what my interest rates are on my credit cards. You know why? Because I don't carry balances. And so that's really the position you want to put yourself in where, you know, I, I think the last time I checked the average interest rate for a general use credit card, so not a retail store credit card where everything's into the 20s, but on a general use credit card like your Visas and your MasterCards and such is about 18%, which is psycho. I mean, no one would pay 18% for a car loan. No one would pay 18% for a mortgage, but we, we gladly do it for credit card debt and we don't complain about it, not very much anyways. You can raise that to 20%, 22%, that's fine. But unless you, if you pay your balance in full every single month, and that's really a change that has a net zero impact on your bottom line, and that's really the position you want to get yourself in. Roughly, what percent of people pay their balance in full every month and are revolving their debt in the credit card universe, just roughly? Yeah, so the, the news isn't good. Um, the statistics tend to jump all over the place. Um, you know, cl- clearly, the, the percentage of consumers, if, if you believe the credit bureaus, the overwhelming majority of consumers have some form of a balance on their credit card, on their credit report. Now, that that's a little bit misleading, Jordan. I, I don't want to suggest to you that every single consumer who has a credit card also has credit card debt, because the way that the credit reporting system is set up is it's, it's once per statement cycle. So it's not real time, meaning that just because the balance on your visa might be $500 right now, it doesn't mean that the balance on your credit report is actually the balance at any particular time, except for when your prior statement was cut. So even though the data suggests that the majority of consumers do have some form of credit card debt, that might actually be a little bit misleading, given that that might be just the balance on their statement from the prior month that they may have paid in full. But I mean, beyond that, the the actual balances that they're covering, where they are paying interest, is it like 40% or 50% of, of the total universe, roughly what percentage are paying interest every month revolving their balances and not paying off in full. Yeah, I don't know. I don't track that level of, of credit card use. Um, so I, I couldn't give you an accurate figure. So I mean, do you think people are using their credit cards now more than they have in the past because of inflation, because they can't cover uh, the cost of basic things with their income? Their income is not keeping up with the prices of what they need to buy. You know, if you, if you look at the, tra- the trajectory of balances, average balances, it, it is going up. And so, you know, th- that's part A. Part B is, well, why is that? Is it just because, you know, is it the time of the year that's, that's causing the balances to go? I mean, we're, we're about to enter the holiday shopping season where people tend to lose their minds. Or are they going up because, you know, gas prices are higher. And so filling up your, your tank is, you know, $20 more than it normally is, and that's a contributing factor to your larger credit card balance. So, so it, it, it's unknown because the backstory hasn't really been told other than the fact that balances are going up. And that's problematic because, you know, when we, when we get to the discussion of credit scores, I think we're probably going to talk about the issue of revolving credit card utilization, which is a pretty predictive attribute in, in scoring platforms, which can cause a score to go down, even if you're making your payments in full every, or even though you're making your payments on time every single month. So you're saying the utilization rate is going up. The percent of people's uh, total credit available they're using has been going up, and that's hurting people's credit scores. It, it has to. If, you, if, if, if the average credit card balance is going up, unless the credit limit is also going up at an equal pace, 
I mean, it's a math problem. If your balances are going up and your limits are staying the same, then your utilization ratios are also going up. That's a mathematical certainty. To the extent that that increase is meaningful enough, then your average credit scores are going to go down. It, 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 it can't not happen. And it is happening. You're saying this, even so, you're still saying we're at the highest credit score average we've ever had, despite that. Based on based on data from last year. Now, what we don't know is, well, what happened to credit scores this year? So that room, it, credit score movement tends to be a kind of a lagging indicator. So I wouldn't expect to see anything until next year. Yeah, very good. OK, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Alzheimer. He's a credit and debt expert, written several books on the subject. Uh, and we're going to be back after this. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's MyPassiveIncome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Alzheimer. He is a credit and debt expert on many topics we've been talking about so far. Welcome back to the show, John. All right, I'm back. Thanks, Jordan. Let's talk about credit cards particularly. So in this environment where you have rates rising, what are some steps people can make to get the best credit cards? Yeah, and so that's that's actually an interesting question. I've I've, I've probably been asked that question, I don't know, 10,000 times over the past three decades. And it kind of shocks people when I tell them that when you're comparing credit cards, that if you're comparing interest rates on the credit cards, then you really, you probably should not get a credit card. Because if you're, if you're almost... Um, conceding that you're going to pay interest and you're just looking for the cheapest interest, then my advice maybe is to look at a payment option other than credit, maybe debit or something other than your something other than a, a method of payment that you're going to pay 18 plus percent uh, on your on your balances. So 
So I never, ever say, oh, compare the interest rates and whatever the lowest interest rate is, go with that one, because even the lowest interest rate is exceedingly high for credit card debt. So what I always tell people, if you're going to if you're, if you're going to use a credit card, then at the very least, kind of commit that you're going to use it uh, sparingly enough that you can pay it off in full every single month. And then you can really focus on the cool things about credit cards that, that people gen- generally tend to overlook. Um, and certainly the consumer advocates who hate credit cards, they always overlook things like the ironclad fraud protections, the portable capacity, the really good rewards programs. And in my mind, I, the best thing about a credit card uh, from a user's perspective is is a good rewards program. And I know that kind of sounds elementary. Oh, yeah, everyone wants a good rewards program. But you'd be surprised, number one, how many people don't use points that they earn on their credit cards. And so they either forego them or they never actually get the benefit of earning them. Or number two, sign up for credit cards where the, re- where the rewards aren't terribly relevant to them. I'll give you a great example. So I live in Atlanta. Delta is hubbed in Atlanta. It makes no sense for me to have a credit card that gives me airline miles for, for an airline that is not that doesn't come into Atlanta. So but you'd be and you'd be shocked how many people, oh, I signed up for this particular card. I'm like, great, are those rewards relevant to you? Well, not really, but the interest rate was low. So it's almost like they have missed um, an opportunity to to really get a credit card that is that's meaningful to them because they focused on something like the interest rate. Another one that I think is important, and and this flies under the radar as well, is the customer service of the credit card issuer. There are tons and tons of credit card issuers in the United States. If you look at the J.D. Powers um, uh, uh, surveys with respect to consumer satisfaction of credit cards, two companies win every single year, Amex and Discover. And so to the extent that you're looking for a card that is getting year after year, high marks for things like customer service, and you're going to have to call your credit card issuer, I guarantee it, um, then at the very least, Discover and Amex probably should be on your list. Now, a lot of people these days are doing these 0% bounce transfer offers, uh, maybe a fee of 3 or 4% Yep. Uh, in order to consolidate and pay off their higher interest credit card. Is that a good idea? I love them. I love those options. And you know what? I think I'm the only person who, who says that with that much emphasis. Um, the, those cards have a very, they have a very specific purpose. And that specific purpose is for you to take interest accruing credit card debt, transfer it to zero interest credit card for a period of time. And, and sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's 12 months. Periodically, you'll even find them that'll give it to you for a year and a half of no interest on purchases and no interest on balance transfers. You're exactly right. They, they, they will come with a balance transfer fee, and that's usually a very small percentage of the amount that you've transferred in. But if you look at the amount that you're going to save by not paying interest relative to the fee you paid to transfer the balance, it's way in your favor. The, the thing that you have to keep in mind is the goal of these cards is to buy you time so that you can aggressively attack your balance and get out of it, not that you can just float for 12 months and then go and try to get another credit card and transfer all your balances to that card. Eventually, the credit card issuers are going to stop offering you those cards because you have too much credit card debt. So I absolutely love them, but I also love them if they're being used correctly because, you know, we talk about rewards and what's the best reward. The best reward for a credit card is free money because that's very, very unusual. And so to the extent you can find one of those cards that's going to give you 0% for a half a year or a year, and you can use that time to pay off your balances, and then when the interest rate grace period 
ends and you are now accruing interest on balances, your balance is now zero and you can kind of kind of re re-engineer how you're using the cards so that you never ever get yourself in the position again where you need a zero percent balance transfer offer to get yourself out of the credit card debt. But by and large, I love them, but you got to use them properly. In general, are the credit card companies' credit standards going up or down these days? I mean, during the crunch in 2008, 2009, they tightened credit criteria dramatically and they cut people's credit lines dramatically. And then it seems like it's come back a lot. Where do we stand on the spectrum of tight versus loose uh, giving out of credit? It, it, we're still on the loose side of the fulcrum. Um, obviously, it's more expensive. So that in and of itself is limiting um, and it's kicking some people out of the market. And it certainly, it, at the very least, it's giving people pause and making them think about, wait a minute, do I really want this mortgage at 7%? Even though I can probably afford the monthly payment, do I really want to have that monthly payment? So, but, but yes, I do remember in um, 08 and 09 and 2010, you had all these different loan programs were eliminated because, you know, the Ninja loans and the NAGAM loans and things like that. Uh, that stuff is gone. So there's no need to re-eliminate them uh, but t today, what you end up seeing is not necessarily a tightening yet, uh, but it's just it's the cost that is kind of self. Uh, it, it, it's it's becoming its own tightening just because of the of the cost. But if you look at the average um, FICO score needed for things like the best interest rate on a mortgage, the best interest rate on an auto loan, um, access to the best credit cards, that really hasn't changed. It's still 760 for mortgages. It's still 720 for auto loans, um, and it's still in the in the low 700s, high 600s for credit cards to get a, to get a decent or better credit card. So we haven't really seen the what it's called the it's, uh, the adjustment of um, the adjustment of risk tiers, which means in English it means that the credit score requirements are either going up or going down. And we haven't really seen that yet, but but you never know. It only takes one or two lenders to do it, and then the whole industry tends to be copycat uh, like they did in in 09 and 2010. Yes. Let's talk about credit bureaus now a little bit. They've been criticized a lot. The FTCs had several settlements with them. Are they doing a better or worse job in keeping people's credit reports accurate? Well, look, let's be honest. Credit bureaus have been criticized for 100 years. So, I, you know, it's 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 like the IRS. People generally don't have good things to say about them, regardless of what point it is in time. Um, so the there have only been really a small handful of uh, credit file accuracy studies performed by what I would call neutral parties, right? I mean, every once in a while you'll see a credit file accuracy study performed by an organization that's either a consumer advocacy organization or, or some other organization where you would expect the results to not necessarily look favorable to the industry. Um, the, the Federal Trade Commission, which nobody would ever accused of being an, an, an industry loving you know organization uh, they obviously have regulatory and enforcement with the CFPB over credit credit bureaus as it pertains to credit file accuracy so really they're the they're the ones who who performed the most recent uh, what I would call reputable and generally recognized credit file accuracy study and what they ended up finding was that about 20% of consumers were able to find at least one item on one of their credit reports that they felt was incorrect now, what does that mean, right? Because that's kind of important. Does that mean that you found a foreclosure on your credit report that was wrong? Or does that mean that you found a repossession on your credit report that you feel was wrong? Or does that mean, does that, or does that, mean that the apartment number on your third former address was wrong? And so really the, the, the definition of error, um, because it, it can encompass so many different 
possibilities is, is, is somewhat problematic. One in five is a really bad statistic. It's 20 percent, uh, but it's 20 percent. But really, the, the error could be something that is not really uh, what's referred to as being a meaningful error because either A, it doesn't have any impact on a credit score or B, it's really something that's cosmetic. You may have a former name that has an initial that's not yours. And so, so certainly, yes, you want to get that stuff corrected and you want a fully accurate credit report. But I, I think most people do have accurate credit reports if you, if you really sit down and take an honest look at the industry without kind of going into it almost knee-jerk, angry, without even doing any research. Um, I, th- I think most people would find that they do have uh, pr- pretty decent credit reports. And now look, the credit industry... Um, and again, they, they take their fair share of criticism. I, I think what they have done um, since COVID, since early 2020, and, and even the most rabid uh, critic of the industry has to at least acknowledge that they did something really great, which is they have essentially opened up their systems and are giving credit reports away for free every week to anybody who wants them, which means that you could actually claim all three of your credit reports 52 times a year to the extent you were that voracious of a consumer of your own credit report information. So there is, there really is absolutely no excuse for a consumer not to be aware of information on their credit report that is, that is incorrect because, uh, I mean, name another industry that gives away their core product 52 times a year. At, by the way, voluntarily, they're not forced, they're not being forced to do that. And I, I've, I've looked and I can't find one that does that other than the credit reporting industry. So certainly, yes, they take their fair share of criticism um, and some of it is earned, but they also do a lot of things good for for consumers and and I don't think they get enough credit for it. I must say I'm surprised at the 20%. The the impression is it's much, much higher than that. There are errors, significant errors in credit reports, not 20% for all errors combined. That sounds low to me because people complain who have errors on their report, I guess. Well, if you, th- if you think about it, Jordan, I mean, how many complaints do you get from people who have FICO 800 and perfect credit reports, right? Hey, right. They, they may not like the fact that may have, they may have had their information um, exposed in a data breach, which is certainly understandable. But, but most people, and, you know, given the fact that the average credit score is 716, I, I think if you asked, you know, that your next 100 consumer callers, what do you think the average credit score is? I think most of them would say something along. 716. So most people in this country do have good credit reports. They do have good credit scores, but the, most of the complaints are, are are rightfully going to come from the the group of the population that does have errors and that does have have lower scores. Yes, indeed. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Alzheimer. He's a credit and debt expert. We're going to continue to talk about all these topics after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. 
If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Alzheimer. He's a credit and debt expert. I'm talking about all these issues we've been talking about so far. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Jordan. Let's go to student loans. Uh, very controversial lately. We have something like $1.7, $1.8 trillion worth of student loans out there. Um, President Biden has got this uh, program where he's forgiving up to 10000 in student loans for those up to 250 in income, uh, up to 20000 if you had a Pell Grant. Do you think this is a good idea, what he's doing? Uh, you know, I, I've got to tell you, I didn't have student loans. Um, I worked through school and I don't have any children in college right now. So the student loan, I'm, I'm actually kind of an interested observer at this point. I, 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 I understand um, both sides of the argument. I, I certainly understand because I'm a credit guy, right? And, you know, as one of the tenets of credit is you, you, when you make a commitment to a lender, you live up to your end of the bargain, which means you pay back what you owe, and generally you pay back with interest and you pay back on time. So I, I absolutely understand the group of the population that is vehemently opposed to essentially giving away free money to borrowers who got into the debt voluntarily um, and uh, uh, committed to paying it back over time with interest at when they did so. So it, it's not like it's not like medical debt, which people don't choose to get into. It's almost thrust upon them, and they and they kind of have to get into it. Um, it, it this was a, this was like all forms of credit: mortgages, auto loans, credit cards. They they were voluntarily incurred with the expectation that I'm going to have to pay this back someday, and I'm going to have to pay it back with interest. And I understand the terms, and I understand how much my tuition is, and I understand the value, the the true marketable value of the degree that I'm trying to earn relative to the amount that I'm going to borrow. So none of these things are mysteries to students when they start college. So I understand the argument against the student loan forgiveness um, side of, of the equation. Now, on the pro, so if, if, if you ask me to take more of a kind of a, a, a supportive view, then if you're, if you're telling me that $10,000 or $20,000 or whatever it ends up being for whatever consumer really is the tipping point between kind of financial stability and financial health versus the status quo 
then look, I, I'll be the first to say, okay, then it really worked out for this particular consumer or this particular group of consumers. And, and that's great. If, if the goal was to somehow alleviate the financial stress on someone so that they can, you know, uh, pay taxes and, and participate more fruitfully in the U.S. economy, that, that's, I don't have a problem with that either. But I, I generally will tell you that I, gen, I will defer to the, I got into this debt voluntarily. I understand I have to make a payment. I understand that I owe this money. Um, and I, I, I tend to, to fall on the side that if you earned it, you, you probably should pay it back. And remember, student loan interest is tax deductible. So it's it's not as bad, even though people say, oh, there's more student loan debt than there is credit card debt, which, yes, as a raw number, that is absolutely correct. But I think the value you get from a student loan is exceedingly better than the value you get out of credit card debt. And the interest on student loans is deductible, where interest on every other type of loan except for mortgages is not tax deductible. So so I think, and I'm not sure it's a fair apples to apples comparison other than just the, the fact that a lot of people have student loan debt and a lot of people have credit card debt. Look, if you're going to forgive debt, if you really want to forgive debt that is going to have a meaningful bottom line impact to a consumer, and obviously the U.S. government can't do this, but really it's the credit card debt. I mean, that's the most expensive debt that we have. We pay more to service credit card debt than we pay to service student loan debt. So to the extent that it's really a bottom line argument, it might be better just to give that money to the credit card issuers and have them forgive our credit card debt rather than forgiving our student loan debt. That's very likely to happen. No, no, no. no. Very, very unlikely to happen. So for people going to college now, uh, are there ways that they can finance college without taking on so much? I think the average person has about 38,000 student in, in student loan debt when they graduate and many people, if you go to graduate school, you know, hundreds of thousands of debt in many cases. Are there things people can do up front to avoid taking on that amount of debt? Of, of course. Look, there, I, and, and I can tell you that student people leaving high school and going into college hate this part of the discussion because it makes them acknowledge certain things. And, and some of those things are, um, do you really need to get the type of degree or is the degree that you're really pursuing something that is kind of um, cosmetically attractive to you or is it really something that is going to make you a marketable um, cog in the workforce? Meaning that are you, are you, is your value higher because of this particular major or group of classes versus something else? So in that scenario, like for, I'll give you a great example, Jordan. So if I end up paying $100,000 for an engineering degree and $100,000 for a degree in Shakespearean literature, you tell me, am I more marketable with degree A or degree B? It's the same amount of student loan debt. So from that perspective, the, the tuition, the, the, it was, it's equal. But I think most people would have to acknowledge, even those who are not liking this part of the conversation, that the engineering degree makes the person more marketable than the degree in Shakespearean history. So I think number one is you have to be realistic about the value of what you're buying. That's number one. Number two is it, you do not have to go to the same school the entire time you're in college. And taking core classes at a really expensive college does not make sense when you can take core classes at a college that is a more reasonably priced, maybe in-state school, and then you transfer somewhere to get 
your degree with from the marquee institution. No one cares where you took English 101. No one cares where you took chemistry 101. They care where you got your marketing degree or where you got your business degree or where you got your MBA or where you got your lottery. That's what they care about. So to the extent that you can be a little bit nomadic when it comes to your college experience, you can absolutely save a ton of money because you're borrowing considerably less money for the first year and a half to two years than you're going to borrow than than the value you're getting back for your borrowing in the last two years. A lot of people are making the decision not to go to college at all because of the amount of debt that we've taken on, and they're either going to community college or sometimes boot camps or online universities. Or I think it's really making people change and, and consider carefully whether they want to take this kind of debt on. I think it's I I I could not agree with you more. And in fact, I I was sitting at a high school football game last week watching the um, commencement of the senior football players, and they were all announcing, you know, this is so-and-so, this is where he's going to go to school, and this is what his degree is going to be in. And there was an entire group of parents that were sitting there basically immediately assessing the future earning power of the, of the football, the high school football player based on not where they were going, but what degree they were getting. And so every time you heard something like, you know, marketing, you heard unemployed. And every time you heard something like cybersecurity or not going to college at all, but I'm going to a trade school to learn how to become a mechanic, we are all like millionaire, millionaire, future millionaire, future business owner, because you're, you're absolutely right. There's so much value to, to doing that. If you think, look at the five guys hamburger story, that, that kind of is exactly what they did. So I, I think that has to be an alternative to college in some scenarios. Let's talk about medical debt. So this, I think there's about almost a trillion dollars or you know, 900 billion, an awful lot of medical debt out there, which really bedevils a lot of people. As you say, it's not a voluntary thing. What can people do if they have a lot of medical debt on these hospitals and healthcare people can be quite aggressive in trying to collect on that? Yeah, so, so medical debt, by and large, you're right, is not bought. No one chose to get sick, right? No one chose to get in a car wreck. No one chose to get COVID. No, no one chose any of that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, there is cosmetic stuff where you're choosing to get into that type of debt. But I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the non-voluntary or that type of type of uh, medical debt. Um, med- medical debt does not show up on a credit report unless it goes into default, it goes unpaid, and then your medical service provider outsources it to a third-party debt collector. And then usually the third-party debt collector will report that to the credit reporting agencies. The, The CFPB hates that. They absolutely hate that process for a couple of reasons. Number one is it's most of it is not voluntarily incurred. It was something that was thrust upon us. Number two, is that there's a lot of consumers who have medical debt, and it's not necessarily because they're uninsured. It's because the insurance claims process is horrible, and they don't know what's covered. They don't know what's not covered. They don't know when to argue with the insurance company about paying something. It takes forever to get claims paid. And so you end up with medical collections on your credit report for really no fault of your own other than the fact that you got sick. Um, And so there have been major changes to not only the credit scoring system, but also the credit reporting rules around medical debt. So I'll give you a couple of really great examples. So all the credit scores had been built by FICO and Vantage Score, which are basically 100% of the scores sold in the U.S. market. Um, those have been uh, engineered now to either discount 
medical collections or ignore medical collections. And so even though they're cosmetically still on a credit report, they may have no effect whatsoever on your credit score. So that's good news, number one. Good news, number two, is that the credit reporting industry has basically told a thousand plus debt collectors that specialize in medical debt, don't report any medical collections to us for one year from the debt, the date that debt is incurred. So if you go to a doctor's office today, you have a thousand dollars worth of services that goes into default for whatever reason. From that date, you can add 12 months. And then the credit bureaus have basically said, we don't want it until it's had a year to essentially go through the process, let the consumer try to get the, get it paid themselves, or let the consumer try to work with the insurance company to pay it. And, and that amount of time that's being bought is hopefully going to result in the medical collection essentially no longer existing because either the, the consumer was able to settle it, the consumer was able to pay it, or the insurance company ended up uh, you know, paying it if it really was something that they should have covered. So the, the industry has taken a really aggressive stance um, against, really, if you want to use that word, against the reporting of medical debts on credit reports. And even when they are reported, and there are some scenarios where they can still be reported, but after a year, that even the, the credit scoring systems in some scenarios are going to ignore them or they're going to discount them. And so, you know, and, and you can't say that about any other type of debt. You can't say that about credit card. You can't say that about student loan. You can't say that about mortgage. It's only these medical collections where the industry has really kind of bent over backwards to try to do the right thing for consumers without, without ignoring the fact that, that, yes, ultimately debt is still debt and the consumer should pay it if they do, in fact, owe it. If you owe medical debt, is it uh, possible to settle it for whatever, pennies on the dollar, 20, 30 cents on the dollar? Is that a legitimate expectation of people? If, if, you, if, it is, if it is being worked by a debt collector, the debt collector always has some amount of tolerance with respect to um, pre-approved settlements from the original creditor. The original creditor may say, look, if you can get 80% of this, I'll be happy. If you can get 60% of this, I'll be happy. I don't know about 1% to 2% on the dollar. That sounds more like what a debt buyer would offer versus what a debt collector is going to offer to a debtor. But, but certainly, yes, if you're contacted by a collector for any type of debt, whether it's medical or something else, then I would absolutely, first off, don't ignore them. You have to engage them. Um, but but go in and offer 40% or 50% at least get the conversation started about getting the debt settled and getting it exhausted so they stop sending you letters and they stop making the phone calls and, and they update it on the credit report to show zero balance. Very good. That's very helpful. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Alzheimer. He's a debt and credit expert, as you can hear. We've talked about many topics and we have one more section to go. So we'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. 
There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Alzheimer. He's a debt and credit expert. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Jordan. So people who have a lot of unsecured debt, particularly credit card debt, have two choices. Uh, credit counseling, nonprofit credit counseling, where the debt is solidated into one and they pay it off over time, or debt settlement, where they stop making payments and they uh, settle for 20, 30, 50 cents on the dollar. What do you think of the pros and cons of going with credit counseling versus debt settlement? Yeah, so the pro of credit counseling, the nonprofit financial counseling, is um, you're, you're still going to have to pay back a considerable portion of the amount that you owe, which is not a bad thing, right? I mean, if you incurred it, you should pay it. Uh, the good news is, is that most of the, of the legitimate nonprofit financial counseling organizations have arrangements with all of the large credit card issuers, and they will be able to essentially um, prevent any negative credit reporting while you're going through their debt management programs, which Mind you, I mean, I'll acknowledge that they can take a few years to work through those programs. Look, it takes a while to get into credit card debt. It takes a while to get out of credit card debt. But the good news is, is while you're in the program and you're still making some form of a minimum payment, which is considerably less than what you contractually are obligated to pay every single month, um, you're protecting your credit report from the past due balances and the negative late payment reporting. And once you exit, if you successfully exit those debt management programs, then you should exit them with a clean credit report, which is fantastic because now you don't have to tack on that seven-year period of time where negative information can remain on a credit report. Debt settlement also has its pros and and certainly has its cons. I don't want to suggest that it's all great or it's all terrible. Um, the, The value of debt settlement is that you may be able to get out of your debts for a a significantly uh, lower amount than you actually owe. Um, And so from a pure financial perspective, it might be cheaper to do debt settlement than it would be to go through nonprofit financial counseling. So that's number one. Um, It's still going to take time because you have to be able to build a war chest with some of these debt settlement companies uh, a large enough amount where they can go to the credit card issuers on your behalf and negotiate a settlement of the debt. And that obviously that's not something you're going to be able to do in a few months. If you could, then you could settle the debt yourself. Uh, but but it's, it may take several months, if not a year or more, to build up a large enough war chest where the debt settlement company really has enough financial ammunition to, to go to the card issuers and come up with a legitimate offer to, to settle your debt along with the, the book of other debts that, you're, that they're trying to settle. The con is is that while you're not making your payments to the card issuers, um, late payments are going to pollute your credit reports. You're going to go into default. There's a possibility that they may sue you to try to collect the debt. They may not wait for to get a phone call from your debt settlement company. And so obviously all these things are terrible. 
um, and I uh, could permeate your credit report for many, many years, notwithstanding the cost of defending a, a lawsuit from a credit card issuer, which is not a cheap date either. And, you know, a third alternative that, that we didn't talk about, Jordan, and I think it's at the very least we should, we should acknowledge that it's out there, is bankruptcy. And probably half your audience just fell out of their chair asking why in the world did this guy just suggest bankruptcy? But, you know, the bankruptcy code is there for a reason. And it's there to give you legal protection from your creditors. And there are scenarios where nonprofit financial counseling is a bad option. There are scenarios where debt settlement is a bad option. There are scenarios where bankruptcy is the best of a bunch of bad options. And so if you're, especially, especially if your income is lower than the average income in the state where you live, then a Chapter 7 bankruptcy can get you essentially out of debt immediately. And there is no you know, paying into a fund to pay your creditors or paying a debt settlement company so they can go make an offer to your creditors. Uh, chapter 7 bankruptcy, boom, you're done. And so that's the upside. I don't want to make it sound like it's this fab fabulous option because it's not because the record of that bankruptcy is going to remain on your credit report for the next decade. And there's a possibility that it's going to make recovering from bankruptcy and the cost of uh, incurring new credit and debt very expensive. But at the very least, it's it's like ripping the Band-Aid off. You're really able to start from scratch. And to the extent that you're still employed, now you have no debt, but you still have an employment. And, and that's not necessarily a bad place to be. Obviously, there are some debts that are not statutorily dischargeable, things like student loans, things like child care or child support, um, taxes. You know, those things are not, you can't discharge that in a bankruptcy. So you're still going to have to pay that back. But unsecured stuff like credit card debt, then you're, you're absolutely going to be able to discharge that. Let's talk about car loans briefly. Uh, car sales have been very hot. Um, a lot of used cars as well. So people have been taking on a lot of car debt, particularly lower income people. And the car, cost of cars has gone up a lot. Uh, are you concerned that there's too much auto loans out there? Yeah, I, so a couple of things about auto sales that are problematic, um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot, you can point your fingers at a lot of things, like things like Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Appear, I didn't realize this, but apparently a lot of the wiring harnesses globally, I think like 15 or 20% of them remain in the Ukraine. So it's, it's, it's a supply and demand issue. The, the supply is going down. Um, and therefore the cost is going up because there's still considerable demand. If you look at the APRs of auto loans today, they really range from about 6% um, for a 60-month new auto loan, so your typical five-year loan, 6%, almost to 18%, and that's for someone who's got bad credit, but good enough credit to still qualify. Man, you got to be desperate for a car loan if you're paying 18%. That's a really high APR on an auto loan. So the it's not only the supply and demand issue that is problematic. You know, the, the cost of used cars is going up. The cost of new cars is going up. The amount of time you have to wait if you want to build one with and spec it out with whatever the options are that you want, you're going to have to wait. Um, in some scenarios, it's years you're going to have to wait. Uh, you know, try buying a Ford Lightning, an F-150 Lightning from a dealer. Try specking one of those out. You know, you're waiting two to three years for something like that. So um, it's, it's, not just, it, it's not just the supply and demand issue, but it's also the cost in just to get a garden variety auto loan 
the cost of that has gone up. Now, again, the good news is that we're not talking about a $750,000 mortgage loan. We're talking about a, you know, I don't know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar auto loan. And so the spread in the interest rates, while it's painful, it's not as it's not as um, disqualifying of an issue as it would be if you were applying it to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for a mortgage loan. If you have a repossession, is that a really bad mark on your credit report? Uh, yes, sir. Very bad. Anything on your credit report that indicates either terminal delinquency of a loan, which is what a repo is, or just general mismanagement of an obligation, which is usually what like the 30-day lates, the 60-day lates are meant to represent. But anything that indicates that you've essentially thrown up the white flag and said, I've given up. So things like charge-offs, settlements, repos, foreclosures, Anything like that is uh, generally going to consider it's going to be considered to be in credit scoring nomenclature. That's a serious derog or a major derog, and it's going to stay on your credit report for up to seven years. And it could make your credit scores lower, which could make future purchases more expensive. But certainly, yes, repos are not something you want on your credit report. In the roughly two minutes we have left, why don't we kind of summarize the state of American credit today and what people can do to make it better in this era of higher interest rates? Yeah, well, expensive. And so what you can do, it, you know, there's um, there there's a, a pretty interesting trend right now, Jordan, and that trend is people backing out of um, purchase and sale agreements for homes that they found uh, because of the because when they found out uh, the cost of borrowing, because when you when you apply for a mortgage loan, one of the required disclosures, a truth in lending or a TILA disclosure and the TILA disclosure gives you a really good idea of the cost of servicing the loan. And, and I think it can be very eye-opening and almost sticker shock. So you have this a pretty significant percentage of people who are backing out of purchase and sale agreements because they didn't realize how expensive it was going to be to buy a home. So certainly that's one issue is, do you, are, are you really, is right now the right time to buy or is right now the right time to sit on the sidelines and just kind of wait things out? Now, do you need a house? Of course. Do you need a place to live? Of course. Do you need a, pl- a way to get from point A to point B? Of course. There are cheaper alternatives than buying something super expensive and buying something brand new. Uh, is is it going to get better over the next six months? I, you know, some people say yes. Some people say no. Even if they do get better, respectfully, let's say that the the interest rate on a mortgage loan goes down a hundred basis points, which sounds like an that just means it's going to go from seven and a quarter to six and a quarter. And that's not necessarily a good, it's still a subprime mortgage interest rate from two years ago. So right. I, I think it may be a good time to sit on the sidelines and maybe do renovations on existing homes, fix up a car rather than tr- trading it in and buying something new and just maybe f- kind of float for the next few years. And just hopefully the interest rates come down and borrowing is much less expensive. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been John Alzheimer. He's clearly a very good uh, credit and debt expert. We've talked about a lot of different areas of debt and credit. So thanks so much for your wisdom on the Money Answer Show, John. All right, Jordan. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.